Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. One of the commentators opened this section or this chapter of his commenta- uh, commentary on this passage of Scripture with a folktale of a frog that fell into a pail of milk. Maybe you've heard this folktale before, but a frog falls into a pail of milk and try as he might, he's not able to leap out because it's milk and the sides are too slick because it's milk. There's a pail of milk and he's in it and he's, and he's paddling along and nothing he can do uh, it can, can get him out of this pail of milk, but he keeps paddling, he keeps paddling, keeps paddling, and before you know it, uh, all his paddling has turned that milk into butter and allows him to leap out of the pail of milk. Thus is the modern philosophy of man. Just keep paddling, just keep trying, don't give up, you keep working, you keep working at it, keep working, don't give up and you'll make it at some point. Maybe that works in show business but it does not work in relationship with the Lord. You know, it's harder than I think it ought to be to convince someone how much they need Jesus. You ever experienced that before? That, that is the fallen nature. We, we are, before, we, before we come to faith in Jesus, we are convinced we're pretty good people. We are masters at minimizing and at rationalizing and comparing, and there's always someone that sins worse than you, right? Once you have come to faith in Christ, it becomes apparent how much you needed him. Once your eyes have been opened, you know, like Paul, like the scales fell off his eyes, or your heart has been awakened, it, it, our dead hearts have been uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then we realize how hopelessly lost we were. But the state of fallen man is to imagine that we're better than we are and God is lower than he is. And so it's hard to, to tell people, it's hard to convince people how much they need Jesus. All that self-help that we live in and all the try harder isn't going to change our eternal destiny with the Lord. You see, the problem with the frog was external. He's in a bucket of milk. The problem is his surrounding. And if he can just find it within himself to not quit, then he'll save himself. But the problem with us, the gospel says, is right here. It's internal. And so no amount of working or looking within is going to fix our internal problem. Our internal problem requires an external solution. It's a solution that can only be received and never achieved. You know, it's hard to convince someone that they need Jesus. And I think it was hard for Paul to convince people they needed Jesus as well. And so he calls two witnesses to the stand, so to speak. 
that the Jews, the religious, uh, the religious elite, the, the, the people that, that were ingrained in, in self-righteousness, thinking that because of who they were, that they were okay with God, he calls two witnesses to the stand that they would never discount. They would never argue with Father Abraham and King David. So he calls them to the stand. He's made some provocative statements in Romans chapter three, and now he's calling these icons of the faith to take the stand to prove his point. So let's read here in Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham or our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful. Grateful to gather, grateful to worship, grateful to enter into your presence, grateful for your provision, your protection, grateful for your word. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you and to hear and heed your word. And I pray that you would deliver us from any sense that we just gotta keep paddling and save ourselves and help us to relish in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, our forefather, he says, our, that includes himself. Paul was a Jew. So he acknowledges that our connection to Abraham or that the connection to Abraham is theirs by blood, by the, according to the flesh, they're physically descendant of Abraham, he along with all the Jews. And because they were offspring of Abraham, they believed, and this is, this is just something that we have to try, to try to understand because I don't know that we really think like this, but they believed that because they were physically descended from Abraham, then they got heaven. That because of who their, who their great, great, great to the hundredth generation grandfather was, that they're okay with God because of their physical descent. And the circumcision was the evidence, the proof that they're in. Okay? So Paul asks, or Paul says later in Romans chapter 9, that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's kind of shocking because that's what they believed. If you're offspring of Abraham, you're children, you're heirs. You get whatever Abraham got. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he goes back and he says, don't you remember folks that Abraham had two sons? He had two physical descendants and you trace your lineage Jews through one of them, Isaac. 
But there's a whole other line, Ishmael. And so remember, as you, as you presume upon your descendancy, that there's a whole line of people that are descended from Abraham but don't belong to him, are not children of the promise, so to speak. Paul asked, what was gained by Abraham? What spiritual advantage or what privilege did Abraham have that he can pass on to his descendants? In other words, what's the, what's the inheritance? Now that's if, that's if you interpret it one way, but realize that in the Greek there's no commas, so we have to supply our own commas. And if you put another comma after our forefather, then it reads a little bit differently. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, comma, our forefather, comma, according to the flesh? So according to the flesh, what did Abraham gain? Maybe that's what Paul meant. What, what, did, what did Abraham gain according to the flesh, according to the works, according to circumcision, according to what he did? Or, as the ESV translates it, what did, what did Abraham gain our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, physically, he's our forefather. And so what did he gain? What does he have to pass on? Regardless, Paul is getting to the, he, he's going to the, to the top. He's, he's going to the origin of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And you say, what was gained by Abraham? Did he work for it? Did he earn it? You think that because you're offspring of Abraham, you, that you get everything, that you think that you can work your way, you think that your, your circumcision, that, that, your, that your physical deeds are able to save you, are able to make you right with God. Well, let's go back to Abraham. Did he make himself right with God? It says, verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul's going back to that question in Romans 3, 27. What then becomes of our boasting? If Abraham was justified by works, if he was made right with God, that's what justified means. If he was made right with God by works, if he had achieved that right standing with God by doing the right things, then there would be room for him to boast. He did the right thing. Here's your reward. You can stand in that. You can claim credit for that but not before God. He might have had room to boast before men. It's probably right for us to look at Abraham as an example and, and hold him up in high regard. He was a very faithful man, very obedient. Maybe there's some room to boast before men, but even if he could boast before men, he couldn't boast before the Lord. In verse three, Paul uses Genesis fifteen six to prove his point. He says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, Abraham, who was then called Abram, was concerned. His primary was concerned. He's a very wealthy man and he had no children. And he was concerned that a member of his household, maybe one of his servants, was going to be his heir rather than his own child. And he's complaining about this before the Lord. And God says to Abram in Genesis 15, 4 and 6, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in Genesis chapter 15, Abram has no children. And he is walked outside. The Lord calls him outside, says, look up, look at the stars of the sky. If you can count the stars, you can count your offspring. And Abraham, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now let's survey the context of Abraham's faith real quick. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to abandon his place and head out and I'll tell you where to stop. I'm gonna give you a new land and I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make make your name great. And he's 75 years old and he's got no children. Says now just go and I'll tell you where to stop. So that's Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, God promises again to make his offspring like the dust of the earth. Imagine that. Think of the language. If you can count the dust, you can count your offspring. So you got stars and you got dust. If you can count the dust, you can count the stars, you can count your offspring. It's gonna be great, Abram. In verse 16, now we're skipping over verse 15, I mean chapter 15, which we've already covered. We'll come back to it. But then in chapter 16, Abram and his wife Sarah, Sarai, take things into their own hand. He already says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in 15. Now in 16, Abram and his wife Sarai take things into their own hands and she says, I can't have children, so lay with my servant Hagar. And Abram is 86 years old. 11 years, after, 11 years has gone by from the promise, I'll make you a great nation. 11 years. And I mean, imagine, guys, we have a hard time waiting for the two-minute popcorn. <laughs> and Abram has been waiting for a child, an heir, at 75 years of age for 11 years. And finally, they're fed up. And Sarai's like, look, you got to give me a son. Take my servant, Hagar. And they have Ishmael when Abram is 86 years old. Finally, in Genesis 17, when Abram is 99 years old, 24 years after the promise was made, the Lord comes to Abram and says, next year, Sarai will be, uh, she will have a son, she'll bear you a son. And he promised Abram once again, I'll make you a multitude of nations And he changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. And there he established the ongoing covenant, the everlasting covenant between Abraham and his offspring forever. And circumcision is the mark of the covenant. So Genesis 15, where God says, or or where, where Moses, who wrote this, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's right there in the middle of all this. Abraham was counted righteous even though he was still childless. He was frustrated. Years later, years after this, he would take things into his own hand and and have Ishmael. He's still waiting for God to move. 
and it would be years before God delivered on his promise. Nevertheless, when God showed Abram the stars of heaven and said, I'm gonna make your offspring like this, Abram believed. And in that belief, God counted Abram righteous, right with God, justified. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. Abram believed that, the, that this childless couple would have as many offspring as the stars of the sky. That word translated counted appears 11 times in this chapter. It can be translated multiple ways. It has the idea of crediting to one's account. It can be translated counted, reckoned, imputed, considered. It means that righteousness is credited to your account, to your spiritual account, that perfection or holiness or right standing with God is credited to your account based on nothing that you have done, based simply upon your belief. It's based on faith, not on works. Paul continues in verse four. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if Abraham had earned his righteousness, and again, that's the prevailing philosophy. We're gonna earn our way. We're gonna work our way. We're gonna do religious things in order to be right with God. And so Paul's point, if Abraham had earned his way to right standing with God, it would not be considered a gift, would it? I tried to pull that on my daughter and I tried to say, here's a gift when I gave her the payment for work she had done for me. And she knew, hold up, that's not a gift. I earned that, I, I worked for that. Justice requires, biblical justice requires that when someone works for you, you pay them. And therefore, if we can work our way to right standing with God, then God owes that to us. And God is not merciful at all or gracious at all. The problem is that Abraham did not earn his righteousness and nor does anyone else. It's simply a gift. Verse five says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You have to understand that, that Paul is going to the core of the Jewish religion. Abraham was as meaningful and significant to the Jews as Jesus is to Christians. So he's going all the way back to the source, all the way back to the beginning. There, and he's already established there's one God. The God of Abraham is the God of all of creation. And he's already appointed to Zechariah where he says that, that he's gonna have, there's gonna be one king over all the earth. And if there's only one king, then there's only one people, Jew and Gentile alike are going to be brought into this one kingdom. And therefore, there's only one way to be saved. There's not a way to be saved for the Jew and a way to be saved for the Gentile. There's only one way that anyone is saved. And Paul's argument is that it is by faith. Jews, you, you, 
You rely on your, your ancestry. You rely upon your family. You rely upon what you've done. But it was never that way. You got it wrong from the very beginning. Even Abraham, our forefather, was a man of faith. Paul would later describe Abraham's faith in Romans 4.21. Here's how he described faith. He says, Abraham was fully convinced. If you want to know what faith is, faith is not mental assent. Like, I, I believe that George Washington was the first president. That's not faith. That's simply acknowledging what's true. I don't put my trust in George Washington. No, so to to have faith is to be fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what Paul says about Abraham. So Paul's like, Abraham, this man that you claim as, as forefather, your great ancestor, was a man of faith before he did anything. Now, no doubt, Abraham acted on his faith. We just came out of the series on James where James appeals to Abraham in James 2, 21 through 22. James asserts, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. But Paul's point is that Abraham was counted righteous when? Before he did anything, his faith is counted as righteous in Genesis 15. When did Abraham demonstrate his faith with Isaac? Genesis 22. We're talking about 20 or 30 or 40 years after he was counted righteous James says, look at the life of Abraham. His faith wasn't dead. His faith caused him to move. His faith caused him to act. Yes. So James refers to what Abraham did in Genesis 22. And Paul refers to who Abraham became in Genesis 15. Now listen, God knows the moment that you truly believe the gospel. In John, chapter in John chapter two, John records, many were believing in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them because he knows their heart. Jesus knew that not everyone that flocks around me that wants what I have to offer actually believes in me. So Jesus knows the heart of man. God knows the heart of man. God knows the moment that you truly believe the gospel. And God declares you righteous that moment. Listen, even if you don't realize it fully and finally yourself. You ever have doubts? You ever ask yourself, do I really believe the gospel? How do I know I believe the gospel? Paul says that we ought to be working out our faith in fear and trembling. We ought to be asking that question. We shouldn't presume upon it. Because listen, we live in an age of great emotionalism, right? And maybe you have made a response that you thought was sincere, but in reality was indigestion. 
So how do you know? So Paul appeals to the moment that Abram was justified, was counted righteous. It was the moment that he believed. He was fully convinced that God was able to do. And God made a declaration that moment. However, comma, we like those commas. However, years later, God provides Abraham with an opportunity to demonstrate his saving faith. So that he would know and so that the whole world would know. So James's point in James 2 about dead faith says you claim to have faith. You, you say that you believe the gospel. You have, you have done some kind of religious act associated with Jesus. But where does your life reflect that you were dead in sin and now have been made alive? Where have you been able to demonstrate that you actually believe the gospel? You're as bad today as you were when you were dead in sin. Why do you think that that faith saves you? That's James's point. James is dealing with the demonstration of faith. Paul's point is no amount of good deeds, of doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things and life change has ever made a single person right with God. Two different audiences, two different contexts. Now, Paul is going to get there. Should our lives be changed when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Again, we'll get there. Romans 6 and onward is about the life of a truly born again, faithful person. There ought to be life change. I don't know how anyone could read Romans and James and think that they're conflicting. Life change happens after we have been justified by faith. And if there's no life change, to James's point, is that really a vital, living, saving faith? Now, I want you to hear this scandalous phrase that, that Paul uses. And you know, notice that, I want you to notice that, that Paul steps on toes on purpose. For a fact, if you ever wonder, like, Brian, why, are, you, are you just trying to stir something up? Sometimes, yes. For a fact, I'm just following Paul as he follows Christ. <laughs> Listen to what he says here. Listen to this phraseology. This would have, this would have been completely... Scandalous is the right word to the original Jewish audience. Listen to the paradox. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You know, what's the big deal about that? Paul is telling us in the gospel that God does what the Old Testament says God will never do. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 17. He who justifies the wicked or the ungodly and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. 
And God sets himself up as the standard. In Exodus 23, he says, I will not acquit the wicked. And in the Greek translation of that text, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, or LXX, that can be rendered, I will not acquit, I will not justify the ungodly. So Paul is saying, in the gospel, God does what he said in the Old Testament he would never do. Now, does God contradict himself? Let every man be a liar, but God be true. Amen? So how do we resolve this paradox? How do we resolve it? How is it that the just judge justifies, makes right, declares righteous the ungodly? Romans 5, 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Praise the Lord. That's it. That's everything. How is it possible that our just judge would do for us what he said, I'll never do? Because Jesus took your punishment. And by faith, God declares you not guilty. Righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, this may be old hat to some of you. This may not all be all that scandalous, but it's full of wonder. And if we fail to wonder at this paradox, then it indicates that we have failed to apprehend the sinfulness of sin. That we have lowered the egregious nature of sin. If, if our mind does not spin around thinking, how could God justify me? Then we do not fully comprehend how nasty we really are. What a wonderful thing God has done. Paul knows that the Jewish standard of testimony to the truth requires two or three witnesses. So he calls his second witness. Abraham, thank you very much. You've proved my point, but I'm not going to rest with you. I'm going to call David to the stand. King David, come forth. It says in verse 6 through 8, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David is a man after God's own heart. 
But in verse five of Psalm 32, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. In other words, God, I I didn't make excuses. I didn't compare myself to other people. I didn't try to, to calm my own conscience. I simply exposed my sin to you and said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David continues, I said, I will, trans- I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David believed, he knew that God was willing to forgive his sin simply by confessing it. Do you notice that there is no mention of sacrifice? There's no mention of sacrifice. He didn't have to make up for it. He didn't climb up out of the, he didn't have to climb the ladder out of this pit that he has created himself. No, he simply confesses his sin. I'm not going to cover my sin. I'm simply going to, to confess my transgressions to you and you forgave me my iniquity. David had deliberately broken three of the 10 commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery with her. And then he had her husband murdered. There was no Old Testament system of sacrifices for such blatant sin, especially considering that he was the king, the the, the leader, the shepherd of the people. David was hopeless. And all David could do was cast himself before the mercy of God. Now, we don't know if Psalm 32 was a general psalm of confession, but I don't think that it's relevant to us or to Paul because we all know what David did and how he confessed. So I don't know if Psalm 32 was written connecting to what he confessed in Psalm 51, but again, I don't think it's relevant. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51. For you will not delight. And this is where he confesses the sin of Bathsheba, of of, of adultery and murder and coveting. This is his confession. And he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Lord, if there was something that I could do to atone for my own sin, if there was some way that I could work this sin off, God, you know I would give that sacrifice to you, but you don't want that. He says, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices that God accepts are what? A broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So Paul's point, he's got David and he's got Abraham on the witness stand. You could never, ever, ever work your way to God. And no one ever has. And you revere Abraham and you revere David, but go to their words. Look at their life. Abraham believed God before he did anything and God counted it to him as righteousness. And now David says, Lord, I can't work my sin off for you. 
all I can do is confess and trust in you. Paul calls David blessed twice, and David called himself blessed twice in that psalm. Why? How is it possible that a man who has committed adultery, coveted his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, had her husband murdered, could be called blessed? Because when David realized that all that he had to offer God was the very sin for which he ought to stand condemned, and he could work none of it off himself, David was justified sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone. Listen to me. I, Paul is telling us, and I'm telling you, that there is nothing you can do to earn right standing with God. So just believe the gospel and be blessed. It amazes me how people will still hold on and say, no, I'm a pretty good person. Like, look at your life. The standard isn't horseshoes. It's not close enough. It's perfection. Blessed, he says, is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Brother and sister, you need to hear that sin is lawlessness. Sin is an affront to God. 1 John 3 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Brother and sister, you and I are dust of the earth. And we say to our God, our infinite creator, holy God. He says, do this and don't do this. And we go, no. It is lawlessness. It is anarchy. It is an affront to our God. Sin is lawlessness. Have you cheapened it? Do you know, <laughs> do you know what Jesus has done for you? Blessed is the one whose sin will not be counted against him. By linking Psalm 32, with Romans 4, Paul is telling us that when God counts us righteous by faith, he simultaneously decides to never count our sin against us ever again. That's good. When God counts us righteous, he determines then and there to never count our sin against us ever again. What is that song? And I think it comes from a psalm, but as far as the east is from the west, <laughs> that's infinite. You cast my sin away. You've covered my sin with the blood of Jesus Christ and you've covered me with his righteousness without any works on my part, without any effort, 
without me having to, to, to change who I am or, or what I'm done, while I'm still in my sin, Jesus saves me and makes me righteous and never counts my sin against me again. Blessed is the man who is counted righteous by God and whose sin the Lord will not count against him. Amen? We are blessed, church. And we have been given the gospel not to just chew on like it's bubble gum. It's not just for us. It's for us to proclaim. Well, why do I keep, why do I do, why do I, well, one, the, the Bible teaches the gospel. I'm just preaching verse by verse, but why keep harping on the gospel? Because missionaries, you got to go out there and say the gospel to people. And the most effective motivation or inspiration is remembering what Jesus has done for you. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus, you've not put your faith in him. You are as bad as the Bible says you are. And you are as hopeless. And you presume upon the kindness of God and time is short. Repent and believe the gospel today and be justified by faith alone and be counted righteous in Jesus' name, amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. Inspire us to go out to tell a dying and hurting world that they really are as bad as you say they are and the gospel really is amazing as you, says it is, as you say it is. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would change hearts Lord, if there's any inclination on our part to think that somehow because of, of what we've done that we're gonna be okay when we stand before you and that our hope and our trust is not firmly and fully fixed upon the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us by faith alone, I pray that today would be a day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.